Hello everyone, this is a special edition of Reverend. I'm actually cutting it as I'm waiting for my kids to go to sleep, so you might be able to hear them in the background. Um, I had uh, an interview recently with Carbon Mike, who is a, a software engineer and podcaster and cultural critic. And we talked about a load of interesting stuff. He's got a really cool voice, so I'm leaving his introduction on the podcast, uh, just so you can hear um, just just his his uh, his dulcet tones. But I hope you enjoy the interview. And once again, if you want to get in touch at all with any feedback or anything, irreverendpod at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoy the interview. This is Carbon Mike. Recently, I recorded an interview with Reverend Dr. Jamie Franklin, host of the Irreverend podcast. We spoke for nearly two hours about, among other things, culture, Christianity, and COVID-19. Yeah, thanks so much, Carbon Mike. Yeah, my name is uh, Jamie Franklin. I'm a, um, I'm a clergyman in the Church of England, and I live in Nottingham in the UK. And I work in a, in a parish uh, just south of the city centre, very working class Anglo-Catholic parish. And uh, yeah, that's, that's who I am. And uh, tell me a little bit about, or tell us a little bit about your, um, your, all your online activities. Kind of, you, you have a podcast, I've listened to some of it. Um, tell me about you know, what you're doing and, and how you came to get into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, yeah, so, oh man, you know, when, when this whole lockdown thing, you know, the coronavirus uh, crisis started in March, um, I don't know how it was for you, you know, back in those early days, but for me, it was so, it was so hard, you know, emotionally and, and psychologically and, and spiritually. And I, I just, um, you know, I mean, just to put my cards on the table, I felt that what was the reaction to the, to the you know, the, the putative pandemic was so... Oh, it was just driven by panic and fear, and it was, you know, it was irrational. You know, we were giving our freedoms away. We allowed the church to be shut down. You know, all we were being locked in our homes. You know, all of this stuff was going on, and uh, really, I just for a number of months, I think I was probably just adjusting, but at the same time, I was thinking, you know, I, I want to do something. You know, I want to be able to, in some way, speak to this or, or challenge this. And I, I, I don't know how you felt, Mike, but I just felt sort of muted. You know, I felt like there was nothing I could do. There was nothing I could I could say. Mm. And you know, as somebody involved in the church as well, I was it's you know, I'm sure you can appreciate it. it's a really tricky position to be in um, because you have a congregation to think about as well. Um, and you have to think about the way you sort of, uh, you know, you the way you come across to the to the wider community, I suppose. So anyway, so I went through many, many months like that, and I have a close friend, Tom, who um, who helps me, who co-hosts the podcast with me now. But we were basically on the same page, so we, we thought, you know, why don't we make a podcast uh, in which we try, you know, the best we can to sort of diplomatically, but without without um, without compromising on our convictions, to do a kind of theological and philosophical critique of our culture and specifically i suppose the way that our culture is responding to the coronavirus pandemic so that's what we've been doing for the last uh, couple of months or so and that's how i that's how we that's how you came across me i think mike that, that's correct yeah yeah um it, it's funny i um 
one of the things, I mean, first of all, that, I mean, I have to say, you know, coming across you online and seeing what you were doing and then you know, listening to that podcast um, really lifted my spirits because you hear a lot of people, um, you hear a lot of people talk about the the lockdown and talk about the, as you say, the putative pandemic. I'm so glad you said, <laughs> I'm so glad you said it that way. Um, and you get the impression that people are trying to weigh in without really weighing in or really weighing in without, without staking out an actual patch of ground. Where'd you come down on this? Well, you know, they're trying to do their, but I, and, and I, Maybe it's because of, you know, just my my um, my ornery nature. But I like to hear people say, listen, this is right and this is wrong and this is bad and this is good. <laughs> and and so um, hearing you hearing the both of you uh, talk about these issues and and really talk about things in language which was, uh, you know, reasoned and calm, but in a way uncompromising was very was very good it was, it was a tonic you know so um i'm very glad you're doing that before we go any further how can people find that content online where where are you to be found online yeah so absolutely yeah so we we're on twitter uh, at irreverent pod that's our uh, that's our twitter handle irreverent pod uh, and the tw- the podcast is available on all major podcast providers so it's on itunes it's on spotify it's on it's on google um, yeah, just search search for irreverent, and um, it will it will come up. So that's a reverend with a D at the end rather than a T. You know, kind of play on words. Uh, yeah, so that's that's how. Thank you. Excellent. Now, uh, before we kind of get into chopping up current events, um, which I'm really excited to do, I just maybe want to get a little uh, talk a little bit about how you came to the church. I mean, how did you come to be a clergyman? What was your, were you in another industry and, and, uh, or rather were you in industry and transitioned out? Was this a calling that you felt from, from the time you were a kid? You know, how, what, what was your path into this? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, I guess, you know, I was, I was raised by a single mother and um, so I didn't really have any, she's a Christian and she always, you know, she always has been, but I, I didn't really have any faith myself growing up. And then when I was about, uh, when I was at university, I suppose, then I, I, when I was about 19, I sort of found, I found faith in myself in a, in a, a charismatic evangelical setting. What? Um, church. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that was when I was, I suppose, about 19 and I, I, I would have articulated it like this then but you know I became very interested as soon as as soon as that happened it wasn't only that I I really had a strong faith it was that I became very interested in the church and in in a way in in theology I suppose as well I mean I I did philosophy and English language for my undergraduate degree so um, I was kind of interested in you know I was kind of interested in the more intellectual side of the faith as well so immediately it started sparking things off for me and it was it was a long journey, and I, I did I did various I did various jobs in my twenties um, alongside um, a few degrees that I took at various points. So um, you know I was a music teacher at one point. Uh, I worked at a, a cathedral. I worked at Winchester Cathedral, um, which is uh, as a verger, which is a, a beautiful uh, beautiful church um, 
where I used to live in, in Winchester. And, you know, I did, I did a couple of other things, but basically um, it was all sort of leading up, I suppose, now that I look back on it, to uh, going through the discernment process in the Church of England and, um, and, and training to become a vicar, which I did in Oxford, um, not 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 long ago. I mean, in, in fact, I'm still really in my training because I'm only I'm only a curate now. Um, yeah. So those are those are those are kind of the headlines. I don't know. Do you want me to dig into any of that at all? Or oh or, yeah, uh, oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so this is so, so your mother. Your mother's a Christian. That's right. Yeah. And uh, but you you really didn't. Um, did, did she? I guess in, in the home she did she kind of insist on Bible study and you kind of went through the motions or, you know, not really, you know, what, what was that, you know, what, what was it like to be the, to be the son of a woman who was a Christian, but you yourself not, uh, you know, were not of the faith? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question. I, I suppose when I was growing up, you know, my mom, you know, to be honest with you, Mike, I had two brothers and we were not, you know, not easily corralled, if you see what I'm saying. Um, you know, and um, so my mum, you know, she was just doing the best job she could, I suppose. And she would, she's very, very forthright. She's, you know, a bit like me, you know, she's, she's, she's very straight down the line. If she thinks something, she'll say it. And so, you know, we grew up with a very strong kind of, I don't want to say Christian morality, because it was more than that. It was like a very strong Christian worldview impressed upon us, right? So very, very clear ideas about things. And I wouldn't have necessarily rejected those ideas, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. In my heart, I did I did not want to be a Christian. You know, and it wasn't even, you know, like I found it, you know, you know, distasteful or, or, or oppressive or anything like that. It just was somehow I just wasn't I wasn't particularly interested. You know, I, I, my mum went to a small Baptist church where we grew up and it just, you know, it just didn't light my fire, if that makes sense. Yeah. So. Yeah, do you, I mean, does does that make sense? What I'm saying? It certainly uh, does. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I remember, you know, it, this is it. Sort of sounds crazy in some ways, but but I remember even reading Christian literature and pretty much sort of agreeing with it. If that mm, makes sense. I, yeah. Um, for example, I read *Mere Christianity* by by C.S. Lewis when I was a child. Yeah. And um, I I was I thought you know it makes it makes perfect sense what he's saying. It's pretty convincing. But, you know, there was just something there. It was like, you know, maybe now look back, looking back on it, I'd say it was like maybe, you know, the, uh, you know, the kindling was all laid. Right. Yeah. You know, does, does that make sense? That, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, what, it's so interesting you mentioned mere Christianity because, I mean, that's one of the things on my way, you know, on my pilgrimage kind of because you know, I, I, I have the opposite experience maybe uh, yeah. in that I, I grew up, I grew up as a, I mean, I grew up Christian. I grew up as you know Anglican. You know, in in the Caribbean, that's the thing. You're, you most of the mainline religion is Anglicanism or Episcopalianism, right? So, uh, my parents are from. Well, my whole family's from from the Caribbean. I was born here, uh, raised kind of in that, raised in that habit or in that kind of um, environment, but not really. You know, neither of my parents uh, was was a very strong church person. They weren't into kind of joining things, right? Uh, uh, you know, my mother just you know she believed what she believed and what have you. And then I lost my faith years ago, yeah. 
Yeah. And I kind of, I, I think maybe this is, this is a common experience for a lot of young people. Um, it's it's very convenient to kind of do as you please and be a libertine. And you know, it's like this, this all these, you know, these religious strictures and these ideas that you should, you know, do things in a certain way, certain things are right around. It's very inconvenient, to, you know, to your agenda. But um, more recently, uh, I've started kind of almost reasoning my way back into faith. Which I found when that started happening it was very odd because it was like I was I've kind of built my life on my career and my life on this idea of rigor and the idea of um, really being very uncompromising as far as reason and logic and facts. And at a certain point, what I realized is that partially because of people like C.S. Lewis, who are so good at um at reason, but in a religious context. And then I began, and then several people that I read kind of blew a big smoking hole in the myth that uh, reason came from science and, and, and so-called, and unreason came from these weird, silly religious people who didn't know anything. And that, you know, just, just a, a cursory reading of history, not even getting too deep, blew that thing sky high. That was obviously wrong. Right. And um, so so that that's how I came to it. But it does it does make sense that you you kind of it was it wasn't something you were not you were neither angry at God nor in love with God at that. that, that, uh, That's a great way of saying it. And you know what? It's interesting to me. um, I mean, loads of things you say there, I think, um, really interesting. I've got thoughts going off all over the place here. But just to just to tie back to my story for a moment, um, I I think it, for me, it was almost like the reason thing has never been a problem. You know, I've never I've never thought Christianity was irrational or that it was somehow, you know, intellectually inferior to, you know, a kind of, you know, this sort of, uh, I don't know, you know, the new atheist uh, or enlightenment myth, um, which you, you rightly say is, is, a, is a myth. I've never I've never been taken by that, mm. that at all. Um, but for me, I think the thing that changed was a sense of need for God. I think that was an emotional and a psychological need that developed in me as I was as I was growing up, and and so it was it was like those two things had to be those two things had to be in line with each other. And I I, I I've always believed this as an adult that faith is not just about whether or not we're rationally convinced. It, it, at the end of the day, very few things in life are about whether we're just rationally convinced. Yes, because your heart is involved in belief as well so you know there's no such thing as this again this is an enlightenment uh, myth that you know human beings are, are, are driven or in their highest form they're driven by by pure rationality is is just not true the human the human um uh what is that what is that phrase by by pascal the human heart has reasons that reasons does not know do you, that reason does not know have you heard that phrase before? That sounds um, vaguely familiar, but but that I, I don't I didn't know that it was Blaise Pascal um, uh, yeah, yeah. who said that. The, is, the human heart has reasons that reason does not know. I think it's in the Ponces by um, by Pascal. That's beautiful. But that that for me sums it up. You know, it, the thing that the thing that makes a belief plausible, a lot of the time is whether it's attractive or not. Yes. And in my actual. Um, my my the the, uh, the theological work that I've done, I'm very interested in that idea that beauty is ultimately the thing that that tips us over the edge. 
Yes. Uh, you know, the beauty is the thing that draws us in and, and captures us. And then the intellectual stuff, it might be there, it might not be there. But if your heart is captured by something, then you will find a reason to believe it. Does that, does that make sense? It does. And I'll tell you what's interesting about that is that you find people even completely outside of, of the context of religion saying the same thing. Um, many of the best writers and thinkers in economics, for example, will tell you that, and, and can show with, with convincing reams of evidence, that, um, that it's simply not true that, that people behave, quote-unquote, rationally in markets, or that markets themselves are a purely rational thing, right? Um, uh, people, it, you know, politics is the same thing. You know, people will tell you that it, it, it's simply not true that people just kind of size up the um, size up the policy positions and make rational decisions about. There's there's a deep core of aesthetics, right, and a, and a deep core of of well, of feeling that behind these things. Even Orwell, who's... Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of George Orwell. Um, and he he talked about... You know, he's, he's written so compellingly about, about uh, socialism, about English... about England, about Englishness, right? And about, you know, why so many... Um, I guess you might say middle-class reformers get so much wrong because they really don't understand what it is that motivates people. They think they think you can just show up and reel off facts and figures about factory production and the plight of the workers and what and that's somehow good enough. And one of the things he said, I think it was in um The Lion and the Unicorn, it might have been in that, was that th- th- that these things th- that the the aspirations of people, working class people for example, are not just founded in materialist, rationalist um, evaluations of well, where am I? What is my position now? And what could you know? Could I do better in this way if we adopted this system? It's also rooted in, in a deep feeling of place and habit and tradition and 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 kind of you know what it means to have a good home and have a good life and and things that are deeply irrational. So. All of that makes perfect sense. I, I think I don't want to go on too long, but because you know I, I want to hear more from you about this. But the um, it seems to me that right now I, I want us to come back to this thing of, of of reason, right? Because it seems to me that right now we're in a situation where we have given up too much to um to a uh, we've given way too much before a hyper-rationalist view of the world, which is why, you know, we, we have this habit now of thinking that, all, you know, all we have to do to solve a certain kind of problem is to, is to come up with the, with the right algorithm, right? We, we have to compute these, we can, that, that, that is, we can compute these problems away, right? We can use logic in, in a way that, that in as, logic is the aim point, right? And, and, and uh, as long as we adopt logic, then all these problems simply go away. And what I'm always trying to tell people is many of these problems, they're wicked problems. They have nothing to do with logic. Some aspects of them, the more material aspects of the problems may be amenable to logic, but we're, 
we, we've, we've gone too far down the rabbit hole, speaking of, of French thinkers, of this kind of Cartesian way of looking at the world, that there's you know, the spirit over here and there's matter over here, and let's just you know focus on the matter. So that, that, that's something, you know, as you're talking, that, that's what I keep coming back to. But please, please go on. Yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 I think there's, uh, there are a number of ways to, to approach this um, conceptually. And I wonder, it's interesting you talk about Orwell in that way. And it's also interesting to think about the way that our political categories have changed since Orwell, right? Oh, because yes, yes. What, you're describing, what you're describing Orwell as saying is, is very similar in a way to the way somebody like Roger Scruton, if you're familiar with him, yes. would, talk about, would talk about conservatism, yeah. which is that it's 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 not it's not this kind of top-down abstract idealist thing with a load of beliefs with a load of um, concepts being plonked on your head. It's something which grows up organically out of a sense of place, but not just place. Place as home, and that's that's key. That's a key concept which I think people often don't get about conservatism. Is is that the the country or the nation or however you want to put it? It's it's your home. And everything else kind of flows from that. And I think that that's, I think that, I think that Orwell really, really got that. I think somebody like C.S. Lewis absolutely gets that as well. And I think what we've got at the moment, and I'll come back to reason in a, in a second, but I think what we've got at the moment is a situation where all the boffins have taken over, yes. right? All the, all the guys in white lab coats who naturally live inside their own heads, they've taken over. And they are now trying to impose their holistic vision for society upon us in the name of, quote, unquote, science. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so but anyone anyone can see that this situation is not just about science. Right. It's about what we value as human beings. It's about how we want to live. It's about the shape of our society. It's about how we want children to be treated. It's about how we want old people to be treated. Um, it's about what risks we are willing to take as individuals in order to have a meaningful and fulfilled life. Now, the, society, the scientists and experts are arrogating to themselves the capacity to comprehensively answer those questions. And, and in a nub, I think that that is the most problematic thing about this whole situation. Does that make sense? It, it does. I mean, I would say the only reason why I wouldn't necessarily say... I wouldn't say problematic. <laughs> I would say, and I would, I would maybe stop short of saying evil because I don't necessarily think I don't think it's necessary to impute personal evil to the people doing this. And and let us assume that they are not personally evil, but that is an evil. I think I think it's. I'm convinced that it is an evil. It is a very bad thing yeah. to do this. Um, I want to go back to, this, as you're talking, there's so many things that I've been th thinking about that you're, yeah. you, that you're kind of walking on. For example, this, you know, talking about science. Now, you know, one of the things that I began to um, really think hard about was that the, um, and I don't remember how, what sparked this off in my kind of personal process. I know that, I know that Jordan Peterson was a, was a big kind of gateway back to 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 thinking about religion for me yeah. Yeah. but um i also started to think a lot about science and, and and actually maybe it was because in my career 
because you see, I, I'm I'm what's called I'm I'm a software engineer, right? I, I program computers for a living, but I'm a specific kind of software engineer known as a data engineer. And what data engineers typically do, you know, long story short, we build. If you imagine an oil refinery, we build data refineries, because the the the, the computers that do so-called machine learning and so-called artificial intelligence. Um, they require large quantities of input data, and that data is usually derived from real-world events, real-world things that have been recorded somewhere. That data is often kind of very dirty and noisy, and that data has to be ingested, it has to be cleaned, it has to be collated, it has to be landed in a place where their algorithms can get a crack at it. And depending on how much data they're processing, and often it's very, very large amounts of data, this is a, this is a non-trivial problem. It, it's an industrial engineering problem, simply getting this data where it needs to be. So as a data, excuse me, as data engineer, I often, usually as a matter of fact, work alongside data scientists. So I get, I, I have a front row view of how sloppy <laughs> uh, you know, quote unquote, science often is, and uh, because in my life I've actually uh, worked with real scientists in laboratories as well, and seen you know what it looks like to do empirical science where you're actually you know performing experiments and taking measurements and what have you, then I- I'm I'm acutely aware of the difference between the kind of science that comes principally from empirical observation. And reasoning, right, you know, deduction or induction, and the kind of science that is really just computer-aided guesswork. It's really just we have a model, we, we've, we've built a map, um, and that map, we're calling it a model, it's a, it's a numerical map, uh, and we're going to infer things based on what this map does. But that you, you can very quickly spiral down a rabbit hole with that, because then, the, the, now you're saying... Everything is, is, is based around this model, and you can plug different... I mean, I know firsthand, I've seen it done, you can plug different numbers into the model, the model will give you different results. And now, the, the, coming to the, the crux of the problem, in the private sector, which is where I work for, I've worked for all of my career, in the private sector, you, we use models all the time. But the, but the, the thing there is that uh, that is within the context of a business... If, if the business conducts its affairs on the basis of things inferred, facts inferred by the model, and those facts turn out to be not facts, if the model is wrong, then the business loses money. And if they keep going down that line, then that's the end of them. But the problem we have here is that we have uh, governments that are now listening to people who are doing the same computer-aided guesswork that the private sector does, even worse, because they don't really have the most governments don't really don't really wish to pay guys like me market rate to come and actually do proper software engineering. So you have people like Neil Ferguson who write terrible all 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 scientists, by the way, write terrible software. Like they're just terrible. It's not their job. And so you have scientists whispering in the ears of government officials, and they're doing these computer-aided guesses. But now, when the if the model is wrong. Well, you just keep going because it's, you're not playing with your own money. And if you lose money, if you lose productivity, well, you just raise taxes or you do whatever or you print money, right? <laughs> you know, and, and you can just keep going. And that's, and that's a real problem, one. And then two, I want, I want you to come back on this, is that because, because of maybe because of the hollowing out of religion from the public sphere, it seems like too many people lack a proper 
skepticism about solutionism, about, about, about this, this notion that the algorithm will save us. Too many people are wrapped up in magical thinking about computers. They, they think that computers, in other words, it's almost as if computers have become God for, for, for too many people. Yeah. And that's a problem. So please, please take it from there because I want to hear what, what you Absolutely, and I, I, I totally agree with, with where you're going with that. Um, yeah, I think if, if we think about um, if we think about the Enlightenment myth, which which clearly has you know is is so influential to us, you know, it's it's in the very core of our of our of our of our intellectual DNA. You know, people don't know that they're influenced by these ideas, but they they really are. Um, you know, the the idea that that um, science has you know, improved our lives to, to such, an insu- such and such an extent through the development of technology, the development of medicine, computers would be another factor and, and, and so on. Um, and, and, that, and that science is, is so powerful that it can actually solve all of our problems mm. as a society. Even, even as we say this, this is just an absurd belief, isn't it? I mean, yes. let's just think about the 20th century and and you, you know which is which is by far the most murderous century that there's ever been in the history of humanity yes. and it came came after the enlightenment you know uh, look at look at the uh, you know look at the the death camps in 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 Europe in the second world war just for just for one thing i mean you could you could name all, all kinds of things couldn't you that you know the rwandan genocide the killing fields in in uh, the first world war you know horrors which are unspeakable okay so this this idea you only, need, as you were saying earlier, you only need to have a small amount of historical knowledge to know that this idea is is, is ludicrous. Yes. But nevertheless, we still have this belief. This this, and I, I've said on on my podcast a number of times that this is a kind of religious belief. Yes, because it it's, it's not based in facts. It's not based in evidence. Uh, it's not based in in reason. It's it's based in faith. Right. It's, it's faith in science to to do literally anything that we we want it to do. I mean, I don't know whether you've read, have you read uh, Klaus Schwab's uh, Great Reset book? Have you have you read that book? No, I know about Klaus Schwab and I know about his, his, um, his um, I know about the WEF and all that stuff, but I, have, I haven't yeah. read that book, yeah. But but he's, sure, yeah. But if you read through that book, and I have read it, mm-hmm. um, there's the, the language, if you pay attention to the claims that are made for science yes. and for, for our ability as human beings, the language is the language of religious faith because it's about us being able to overcome any problem, Correct. anything that we think of. We can achieve that thing. There is no obstacle too great yes. for us to overcome, right? And so that's that's all by way of saying. I know I've gone into quite a lot of detail there, but that's all by way of saying. Now we're in this situation where suddenly there's a threat, you know, and and, and Neil Ferguson's antics are clearly part of this aren't they you know yes in, in, i don't know what it said about the u.s but in our country i remember back in march the model said five hundred ten thousand people will die unless we do something right so immediately the government the population everybody is scared they're scared they're literally scared witless you know yes. they, they don't know what to do and so where do they turn they turn to the scientists because the scientists are the only ones who can save us now. And we, we can see all this stuff, you know, with, with these, the, the, the religious language around vaccines, you know, Matt Hancock saying, you know, that he's looking forward to the day when people in the NHS start to inject hope into millions of arms. <laughs> you know, the cover of The Economist, I mentioned this on the podcast, cover of The Economist, a long, black, dark tunnel, and at the end of it, a light. 
and standing in the light like a figure of a man is a syringe. <laughs> and the sign says, suddenly, comma, hope. Suddenly, comma, hope. So this is, this, is, this is clearly religious imagery. And I don't think it's meant ironically. The, these people, they genuinely mean this. I'm scared to death. The only thing that can save me is science and the scientists. Now, just um, let me mention something else here um, in the religion aspect of it. I listened to a very interesting lecture recently, which was comparing the reaction or the response of religious leaders now Christian leaders now to Christian leaders in the past, right? And it doesn't matter really where you look. If you go back to the Reformation, you look at Martin Luther or Zwingli or whomever. Mm. If you look at the 19th century evangelical movement in England, the nonconformist evangelical movement's response to the outbreak of cholera in the 19th century, it's, it's, it's all the same. The response is not, you know, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. The response is... Go to church, listen to the sermon, preach the gospel, and they and and also another aspect of this is that they always called for days of national repentance, yes. repentance, fasting, uh, per, um, processions in the streets to St Paul's with the monarch present and the government present. That's what the religious leaders of those days were doing. Yes, right. You contrast that with now; it's it's a completely different story. And the only the only real explanation for this is that our our worldview has been secularized. And you're absolutely right. We as Christians, we have ceded our territory. Yes. To the scientists. That's Correct. what's happened. Correct. And this and and it's it's to me, it's. I mean, here's what the interesting thing is. You know, I, I'm coming at this a few different ways because it, it, it's like you say. People, people are not merely convinced because you've made a compelling argument. There's a there's a, a core of aesthetics. There's a core of, of of kind of resonance. The argument has to resonate with you in a certain way. Um, but I also think part of the problem is that people there is a generation of people who have been miseducated into, and this this is separate from from the the decline of of religious faith. Um, across the West. There are people, there are many people who've been miseducated such that they they just don't understand what science is and what it can do and what it can't do. And this is something that, that has, has always kind of gotten on my nerves um, even more as I've thought more deeply about it, and and even more as I've as my career in software has progressed, because because again, working next to scientists, working next to people who are who are receiving credit for being for being prescient, working in an environment where people, you know, the the public thinks that these computers, which I know for a fact are as dumb as rocks, are somehow thinking now, it, you know, and and they are somehow uh, have achieved this kind of you know, working in an industry where I can hear people. Um, wealthy, I'll be uncharitable and say wealthy has-beens, um, talk, you know, prattle kind of blithely about machine-based transcendence. I'm thinking about Ray Kurzweil and the transhumanists and the singularity people, right? One day we'll be able to upload our consciousness into machines and then we'll transcend these bodies and we'll be able to, you know, all that nonsense, you know. And it's like, and, and I'm watching this, I'm hearing this, 
and and I'm hearing people, like you say, I'm seeing people being scared witless on the basis of what people like Neil Ferguson publicly admit is 15-year-old software that he cobbled together, which is so raggedy and so buggy that he can't even let the rest of us inspect it. Um, People don't, one of the fundamental touch points here is that people don't understand what science is for. Uh, you know, not not meaning to plug the Foundationist Society too much, but you know, my organization is called the Foundationist Society. We, you know, we and we believe that one of the things we've got to do is to is is to dig right down to the roots of things. We're radical in that sense, right? We believe in in getting to the root of, of them and getting the foundation. We can agree, as Westerners, for example, that we're standing on a foundation, and we have. And no matter what, no matter how we think, we're going to have different ideas about how to build the house and how to furnish the rooms in this house and how to maintain this house that we all share. But one thing that we have to agree on is the the the, the essential nature of the foundation. Of the house, that's that, that that that's we can't compromise on that. Now, um, talking about uh, uh, the roots of science, what is science for, and and what can it do, what it can't, what can can it not do? I was thinking about this. You know, one of these one of these moments I had. You know, when I was sitting up at night and, and thinking about. Um, Thinking about, I guess, religion and 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 transcendence and 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 reason and logic and what I kind of I, I had read I had read someone who had opened my eyes to the fact that many early Christians uh, were both believing Christians and scientists, right? Um, many of the people who who uh, discovered many of the things we take for granted now were actually Christians. They were either they, monks or they were priests or what have you. And um, you know, one one thing that I started that I came up with and started saying to people in in debates was that y- y- you have to. Part of the problem is that we are approaching science and and we're 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 feeding it the wrong kinds of questions. Yeah. Which is to say that if science is a set of investigative techniques that is designed to elicit certain answers from the natural world. And one of the patterns that the scientific method uses is to is to do everything possible to take the investigator out of the investigation. That that is just true. That is if if I perform an experiment in a laboratory, I give you my notes, you should be able to perform that same experiment and get the same results within a very small tolerance. And if you can, that it's more likely then that my results are, quote unquote, scientifically correct. And then that, you know, everyone else in the community does the same thing. You know, everyone, you publish your notes and someone else says, well, wait a minute, we didn't get those results. Okay, slow down. What happened? Bah, bah, bah. And eventually, you know, you come to a new scientific consensus. But this has to, that, that's the problem. There are no shortcuts to that. Um, it's not the case that I can just I can just come up with something in my lab and say this is the new reality. Now, um, so this idea that you get the investigator out of the investigation also means that there are certain kinds of questions that once you ask them, you are by definition no longer in the realm of science. For example, when you when you the, any question that involves should, right? What should we do in this situation? That is no longer a scientific question. 
It can't be because the investigator is now in the middle of the investigation. You see, in other words, what is the you could say, what is the likely uh, uh, effect of so and so much carbon dioxide on atmospheric this and that, whatever? That's one question. And even that, that we can get into that. And, and, and there's different ways to measure things. You can get into what is the, you know, uh, 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 what is the nature of this pathogen? What does it do in the human body? What are the rates of fatality? So you can get into all those questions. Okay. But the, but the moment you say, okay, now, what should we do? That is not a scientific question anymore. And my biggest problem with people like Boris Johnson, the people in his government, is not even necessarily that they're making bad decisions because, you know, people make bad decisions, what have you. The problem I have with him is that it's almost like he refuses to make decisions. He thinks that his job is to, quote unquote, follow the science. It can't be his job to follow the science because because the the question that he is he is hired to to kind of provide answers to or at least to point to some potential answers to, is what should we do as a country? That's not a scientific question. Yeah, I mean, mean, you're absolutely right. And and what you're saying is, is, uh, it's, it's, I think many, many people think this about Boris Johnson, just to comment on that quickly. You know, he is a man who does not make decisions. He's always looking to to pass the buck to somebody else. Yes. And that's, that's what's going, you know, when he says, you know, he's, he's not, he's not stupid enough to, 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 to realize that you know that this 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 phrase follow the science is disingenuous you know he knows he knows what he's doing he's yeah. trying to he's trying to make out that he's not responsible for these decisions well, that's so exactly, they, yes yes that's exactly right. correct but that's that's um that's i mean i i think that's actually indicative of the way lots of the political scene is in 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 the uk anyway but it's especially the case with with boris for sure um, but, you know, if I could just go back to this thing about rationality and, and, and science yes. for a minute and also and also to tie in with with the religion question, um, you know, so the Enlightenment comes along and says, you know, all we need to do is is, is uh, have faith in the power of human reason. And part of that is about science, of course. Um, but it was basically about, you know, the, the human reason has this has this incredible power to kind of elucidate all, all the mysteries of reality. Yes. And. Um, and I suppose that the interesting thing to me about about the situation we're in now, and and actually, it's not just about the coronavirus. I could bring some other stuff in here as um, to 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 say that it's not just this now, but but things have been going on for a while. And um, you know, I mean, for example, we could talk about the the conversation around around gender and, and sex. That would be that would be part of this as well. But but the thing, the point is. It's quite interesting that, you know, with all of this belief in human rationality, with all this belief in, in, in the power of science to solve our problems and to lead us in the right direction and to improve our world, that this is the situation we're in now. This is where science has led us, not to greater levels of rationality, not to a more fruitful and harmonious coexistence, but to a situation in which we are, I mean, I don't know what's happening in where you are, but I'm locked in my house now. Uh, I'm not allowed to leave my house for another two weeks. After that, I still won't be able to to have uh, people come come visit me. I'm subject. To, my church is closed down. I'm subject to all kinds of other restrictions, right? And and there is a significant question over the the data, the graphs, the the hospital occupancy occupancy rates, the projections, as we, as you've been saying, the models. We don't even know that the science, the predictive science, is correct, and we've got very good reason to believe it's not. And yet. 
look at what has happened to us. Correct. We are we are behaving like headless chickens. You know, the, the, the politicians are out of control. They don't know what they're doing. We're about to we're about to crash into an enormous economic recession. Correct. The prime minister Correct. has just promised to ban cars, cars in right in 2030. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this is we're we're, we're living in an age which is which is completely irrational yes. as far as I can tell. There is no rationality involved in this at all. There's no there's no self-awareness. There's no there's no philosophical grounding. You know, it's it's like we've it's like we've forgotten we're not not even forgotten. It's like we don't have an identity as a society. But I guess I guess the point I'm making is that this enlightenment dream, science and human rationality, this has not led us to where we were promised it was going to. It hasn't led us there. Not at it's all. led us perhaps, into, into pure irrationality and into a breakdown of social, economic, uh, cultural order. And this is where I think, like if I could say, there is maybe an opportunity for Christianity here to come in and say, look, these promises, you know, these 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 promises of, of uh, you know, a theory of everything, as Richard Dawkins would put it, you know, a, a way of comprehensively understanding and mastering the universe without God. Look where it's got you. Look where it's got you. You know, that that is uh, that is exactly what I wanted us to come around to. But I just wanted to, to go back to what you were saying before. Here's what's interesting. You said it, it's led us to a place you said, that, you know, quote unquote, following the science has led us to a place of complete irrationality. Ironically. My only disagreement with that is um, is is grounded in something that I was just reading recently um, from G.K. Chesterton, right, Catholic apologist. I I don't know if if it was in Orthodox. I think it may have been in Orthodoxy, where he said that the problem with an insane man is not that he is irrational is that he's too he's that he's only rational he's in other words he had that what, what did he say i think i think the quote was that the problem with a, a madman is not that he has lost his reason it's that he has lost everything except his reason and he even he made this be- beautiful kind of uh, uh kind of parallel image of how the, the moon is cold and circular and kind of rational and the sun is kind of wild and 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 outrageous and and apollo was was among other things the god of health you know and poetry and and these irrational things and and um and the moon has given lunatics her name you see what i'm saying so it, it's almost as if yeah. th- that is what always happens if you go down the route of only of of pure logic because pure because pure logic was never meant to be um it, it was never meant to be livable it it's a tool you know my my grandfather used to say um that um you know fire is a and I know this is an old saying that that fire is a is a is a great servant it's a magnificent servant but a terrible master right um, talking about uh, talking about England, Englishmen, uh, London, the city of London has burned down, I think, three times in history. So, you know, Londoners know that very well. Um, fire is the great enemy of civilization, but fire is also the great enabler of civilization. Okay. 
but it, it's and and the, the entire the key to that whole difference is in your relationship with fire. Is it your servant or is it your master? And I think the same thing is very obviously true of logic, so-called science, and especially so-called compu- uh, uh, well, not so-called computing computability algorithms these these kind of this kind of automation right i love my profession i love being a software engineer um but i also i know what these what these machines are capable of i know what they can do and what they can't do and i know what we should not ask them to do going back to to what you said we're living in an age where precisely because we have moved in the direction of pure rationality, pure logic, We've all, that this age has become insane. It's lost its mind. And it's lost its mind precisely because it's lost everything except reason. Reason is a tool. It's something, it's, it's exactly uh, uh, the, the, the kind of the same thing you'd expect if someone started to worship their car or worship uh, uh, you know, chainsaws or farm implements or, or what have you. It's the same kind of thing. You're worshiping tools. Okay, and so you know, either cynical or ambitious men, or just you know, men who don't know any better. You know, minor men. You know, midgets like uh, uh, you know, moral midgets like Neil Ferguson, and for that matter, Boris Johnson and Matt Hancock w- will gladly kind of drag these tools behind them. Okay, and and and, and watch the people kind of follow these <laughs> this this procession of, of of tools behind them, and and. Because they will be able to dodge responsibility. It takes, it's difficult and dangerous to think for oneself. It's, and this is what I've been telling people all the time, right, for for years now, that like, listen, thinking for yourself is dangerous. I know, you know, it hurts, <laughs> you know, it's hard, it takes effort. And uh, there is real hazard there. Because if you think for yourself, well, then you may come to a decision. And then if you come to a decision about something, um, that you know, you come to a conclusion. That conclusion is your conclusion because you thought for yourself. And then, if you decide to take action on the basis of that conclusion, then you're responsible for what happens. And the question is not, can you avoid that? The question is, are you ready for that? I mean, I'm talking not just as a you know, as a as a leader, you know, someone like Boris Johnson, because at this age, I mean, he's done. He's not going to change what he is. But as citizens. Like, are you ready for that? Are you ready to think for yourself and to come to a conclusion and, and, to, and to take and embrace that conclusion as your own and say, I'm ready for the consequences, you know? Um, and and that's, that's, that, that, that doesn't come from reason. That comes from an almost a, a, a fierce, almost like a warrior spirit when it comes to, you know, kind of like, yes, I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever happens. And I'm going to think and I may make mistakes, and that's okay. I am responsible. I am on the hook. I, I can't point to a book. I can't point to a survey. I can't point to a piece of software. I can't point to a chart or a graph. I can't point to a spreadsheet. I am on the hook for this decision. You know, I'm going to live with it. And if it was a bad decision, I'm going to say, yeah, that was a bad decision. I'm sorry. But there again, this is where you Christians at least have an operating system th- th- that accounts for error. And accounts for failure and says, okay, yes, you can be, you're, you're going to be wrong. And you can say you're sorry and try to make it whole. And you can be forgiven. But, but absent that, absent that kind of very Christian bedrock uh, uh, philosophy, 
you're nowhere with this stuff. So that's a problem. I'm sorry, I'm rambling again, but please, please, please take over. I sort of wonder, Mike, what people like you and and other people who, you know, might not be might not be you know within the Christian fold per se, think when you look at the Christian response to to what's happened, because um, it seems to me that when you read through the New Testament, you see very clearly that we follow a crucified Messiah, right? And and crucifixion is not a nice thing. You know, Jesus said things like, pick up your cross and, and follow me, anyone who wishes to be my disciple. Yes. What does it mean to pick up your cross? Does it mean, I mean, why would you need to pick up your cross? I suppose that's, that's a good question, isn't it? Why, why did Jesus need to pick up his cross? Why did, why did the apostles need to suffer and die in the way that they did? It wasn't because they were like everyone else. You know, I mean, you can, you can bet it wasn't because they simply conformed to the spirit of their age, to their beliefs, to their practices, to their, to their mores. You know, it was because they had a message and they stuck to that message regardless of what the world around them was doing. And they were prepared to take the consequences. Correct. Uh, the, the problem I think that we have as Christians now, and I know our cultures are slightly different, but we're, we're basically still the product of the same, you know, the same, the same lineage, historically speaking, uh, obviously diverging somewhat. But the problem, I think, is that we've lived in a, in a society which in many ways has been so congenial to Christianity for such a long time. Right. So we haven't we haven't been persecuted. You know, and, and the structure of our society is, is basically Christian in, in, in so many different ways. And so Christians tend to, in our sort of culture, when we think about the state and when we think about the governing authorities, we tend to think about something like, you know, in, in the book of Romans, for example, the Apostle Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities, you know, because they, they've been put in place by God for your benefit or worse to that effect. And so people quote that, you know, when, when we hear about the coronavirus, right, the government says, shut the church. And what's our response? Well, it's, you know, the Apostle Paul says, be subject to the governing authorities, right? So we, we go to that verse instinctively. Why do we go to that verse? We do it because we've lived in a culture which has been basically Christian or at least congenial to Christianity. The, 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 the question now is, what do we do when that culture starts being far more antagonistic and hostile to Christianity? And we didn't talk about this today, but we've talked before about the, the, the need to wake up to the new reality that we're living in. Yeah. We have to acknowledge that this is a new reality. The churches in this land have not been closed down for 800 years. 800 years. It was in the 13th century, at the beginning of the 13th century, that the church was last closed down. I believe it was by the Pope uh, in the time of, of King John. Over It was a row about the succession of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Right? We're living in a new time. This is a very, this is a very, I'm trying to think of the right word. It's an epochal moment. You know, it's a significant moment when the government of the state try, well, successfully shuts down the church. And you might say, well, it's for good reason, right? Well, they've got a good reason. Well, you know, people always have a good reason. for Correct. Doing right. Exactly. The fact, the fact is the churches are closed. God is not being worshipped. If you really believe in God, if you believe that God has really commanded you to worship him, what business have you got listening to the state? Right. That is not when they tell you to stop doing it. Right. So that's 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 one example. But the fact is, I mean, I really believe that we're moving into a time now where it could be the case 
that Christian faith, real discipleship, is going to start costing us. You know, it's going to start really costing us. And the question is, are we prepared to, as you're saying, think for yourself before God, what is right? Don't just conform to what the world is doing just because they say you need to. You've got to take it upon yourself. You've got to take responsibility for your own decisions and you've got to do what is right to be a disciple of Christ, come what may. And the thing is, I I can say these things, right? I can say these things, but I haven't experienced them, right? It's never cost me either. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is, am I willing? Am I willing to, to, to bear that cost? Am I willing to follow Christ? Am I willing to pick up the cross? Because, you know, I don't really think I ever have done. I've, uh, I, I don't really think I've ever needed to. Let's put it that way. That's where we that's where we're moving now. And it's the fact is, it's like, you know, I think I think a culture or a people, it's a bit like a human being. You know, we're we're sort of, you know, we're, we're overfed. We're middle aged. We're, we're overweight. We're on the couch watching the TV, you know, and then and then suddenly you've got somebody who says, right, you've got to run a marathon. OK, well, you've got to get into shape now. Do you see what I mean? Does that yes, make sense? Yes. It's, this is this is the this is a new situation we're moving into. I mean, I don't know what you think, Mike, but I don't believe, I really don't believe that the world is going to go back to the way it was in January or February of this year. I think we're I think we're moving into a new time, and we've got to somehow come to terms with that.
So there's a couple things I wanted to touch on. I mean, I am, again, because of my ornery nature, I'm inclined to say, you know, the hell with your new normal. You know, you can take your new normal, you can, you can put it somewhere, okay? On the other hand, I know what you mean. This is an apocalyptic moment in, in, in the sense of this is a moment in which masks are being cast aside and things are being revealed for what they are. And to, in, a, in, in that sense, um, it, it's an occasion for celebration um, because, because now you can see the thing for what it is. And that's good. You know, the, I think that the, the, the recent... Um, this this recent election um, in, in in the United States uh, is another kind of apocalyptic moment, um, and I say that as someone who you know didn't vote for Donald Trump last time, didn't vote at all in this election, uh, does not care for Donald Trump, doesn't care for a lot of the people who are around him, but uh, it's pretty clear to me that this that this was an example of an election that 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 someone tried to rig, tried to steal, and. Um, it's it's so interesting. No one can say for certain how these challenges are going to go, but all of them together constitute an apocalyptic moment. The mask is being cast aside. You know, we've gone from, well, sometimes the news media says this and does that and they have a certain kind of, you know, uh, 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 editorial bias to they're just refusing to report certain things. They're just literally like, we're not going to this big thing happened today. We're not going to talk about it. We've gone from, well, these social media companies, they have their thing and their, uh, you know, whatever, and they have user policies that involve this and this and that, too. You may not say anything on your Twitter feed that challenges the validity of the election. Otherwise, we're going to do something about it. You, you can't link to you if, if you're organizing a, a protest against what you perceive to be a stolen election, we will not let you organize. We'll literally shut you down. We'll, we won't let you collect money online. If you want to organize a protest against what you perceive to be um, a, a, an attempted election theft, this happened to an organization called Stop the Steal. Okay, so uh, I think that it, it is a different time. To your point, we are moving into a different time because it's a time when the, because once the mask comes off, um, even if someone picks it up and puts it back on, you can't unsee what you saw. See, you can't unsee what you saw, and see. So that and, and that, but that's good. That's not bad. That's a good thing. And the question is always, you know, comes down to what are you going to do, right? Now, a couple of things you said really, really sparked off some thoughts. One is that you talked about accepting. Well, let me back up a second, because you talked about the idea, and I think this is a very profound. I've, I've talked to a couple of other Christians who said something similar about how Christians lived in, in, in a kind of, it's almost like they lived in a kind of prosperity bubble, um, uh, you know, specifically with respect to Christianity, right? They lived in, in, in a society that, that was not hostile to them at all. On the contrary, it was very kind of friendly and welcoming. And uh, living, it's almost like that, that old saying that soft times, easy times make soft men, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so, so the body, you, you could say, if you know, I, I've, I know, you know, from talking enough to enough of you Christians that you know, you talk about the church as being a body. Well, what happens to the body when it doesn't get exercise? Yeah. What happens to the body when it doesn't, you know, when it doesn't contend? It gets soft, you know. Yeah. What happens when it eats too much? When it, when it, when it gets too much largesse, right? You know, what happens when it, when it's shaded 
from the sun by a supposedly benevolent state. Well, it gets pale and 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 sickly. Okay, and and you know to be in rude good health again, you know that body has to get out here with the rest of us and scrap. That's what it has to do. I mean, I don't you know. And and again, I'm. It's not my place to to advise a churchman. I mean, I'm I'm a pilgrim, right? I'm not even of right. I'm just I'm you know that I'm I'm just finding a lot of answers that are pointing in the general direction of where you are right now. But I do know that there's there's no substitute. You know, I was a scrawny little kid, and um and I used to get bullied a lot. And the only thing that changed that was when I learned to fight. You know, and I and I, I said, you know, so I need to become physically more important. I need to start doing push-ups. I start doing push-ups every day, you know, and just and just change yourself from the inside out. So that's that's one thing that has to happen. Something you said, which was very interesting, about about the idea of 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 your faith costing you something. Uh, years ago, you know, because as a young black guy, you know. Um, uh, uh, at a certain point, I became, I guess you might say, radicalized. Um, and, you know, to, to some extent, that happens to all young people, I think. Um, uh, if, if you think about the Latin meaning of, of, of the, the Latin root of the word radical, and you think about, you know, childhood as being a seed phase of, of a human being, then radicalization is the natural <laughs> progression, obviously, of, of, of young people, okay? But here's the thing. You know, I was I was in a kind of a, and this was years and years and years ago. Uh, I was very much in a kind of a Tanahassee Coates phase, uh, kind of like, of, of course, Black Lives Matter didn't didn't exist back then. I mean, we're talking, you know, the 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 nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties. But um, I had I had everything very neatly worked out to where people who looked like you were at fault for everything. <laughs> it's, it was it was genius. It was like, what am I miserable about this? Well, obviously, there's white people. Well, is this a problem? Well, obviously, white people did it. <laughs> it was it, let, let me tell you, it was it was perfect, <laughs> right? It was like I had it completely worked out to where you guys were responsible for everything bad, and you were the source of all vice, and of course, you know, black people were the source of all virtue. Now. At a certain point, what I started to realize, and I, I, I'm conscious, I remember having had this discussion with myself in my head, was that, but wait a minute, but this doesn't cost you anything. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't demand anything of you. So it, I, I just, I remember having the sense that, you know, maybe no belief system, no, no matter what it is, you know, no belief system can be worth anything. If it doesn't demand something of you. And so when you said what you said about the church, that really sparked up in my mind, that idea that that, you know, you you need to circle back to a regime to to a not to a regime, but to a um, to a way of being in the world where the cost is part of the journey it's like that that's why you pick up the cross because it's 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 almost like no matter what else you have to remind yourself that there is a cost to these things and 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 you, and you, and you got to show that's when you got to show these people something you got to show that's the thing you're not showing them nothing 
You know, you can just shut the, the, I mean, these people, I'm sorry, you know, these people who want to close the church and want to lock people in the homes, this is, these people are the enemy. And, and I don't say that in, in, in the sense that they're evil or that their intent, their, their intent doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't matter. Look, if someone, if, if someone comes into my house, okay, sloshing a, 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 a pail of gasoline around and playing with a lighter, you know, he may not actually intend me any harm. It doesn't matter. He's got to go. Okay, so so I think, you know, you get to show the enemy something. And last thing before, because I know I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but, you know, I, you, I think you, I don't know if you know about a guy named Rod Dreher, uh, D-R-E-H-E-R, but the Benedict Option, pardon me? Yeah, I've read, I've read, I've read the Benedict Option and his new book as well, Live Not My Live Lies. Live Not My Lies, yeah. right. So this is, so whenever, when obviously when I hear you say something like that, we have to prepare for this new reality in which the, the, the culture at large and 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 the and the state is hostile to us. Right away, I go to Rodre and the Benedict Option. I would say that, and and then then one last thing, and then I want you to to, to take over. But this is part of, you know, when I was reading Rodreyer and following his work, and and as he as he was writing, as he was talking about his upcoming book at the time, the Benedict Option, um, I was really inspired by this thought of 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 organizations that can help keep the lights on, right? Um, the idea of, of an underground, the idea of, of secret societies where people kind of meet in the light of reason and they kind of, they kind of hold fast to what's important. And, um, and in a way, I think what I'm always telling my, my Christian friends who are despairing right now is that you have no business despairing because this is all that's happening is that like you are being, you're being shown the way back to your roots because that's what Christianity was 2000 years ago. It was a bunch of weirdos. Okay. On the fringes of this giant empire, you know, literally having to go underground and run for their lives. And by the way, this was back when, you know, deplatforming wasn't just, you know, yeah, you can't post something on Twitter. It's yeah, you're going to get eaten by lions or you're going to get nailed to, you know, nailed to a cross. So long story short, I think uh, I'm, I'm kind of mostly of your opinion as far as that's concerned. And I, I think there there's not just a way forward. There are a lot of ways forward. It's just that people have to step up and, and really engage with that. So I'll stop now. Please, please, please. That's great. That's all, that's all great. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, I agree. And I guess I'm, I'm going to be try and be um, specific about what I mean. I, I don't mean that Christians should you know stop fi- stop fighting or retire into the shadows or anything like that and i mean that what we have to realize is that we can't take for granted that our culture is going to be on our side and congenial to us right so if we want to hold to an orthodox line on on certain things like for example human sexuality you know or marriage or whatever it might be you know that a marriage is you know, marriage is is is, is uh, commanded by God, and it's between a man and a woman, right? That belief. What is it going to cost you to hold that belief? Previously, it would have cost you absolutely nothing. In the fu- now and in the future, it could cost you a lot. It could cost you a lot. Your career. Yes. It could cost you opportunities. It could cost you your opportunity or the um, option to go to university, and you could be shunned from society just for believing that and this isn't even you know this isn't even a a a, a, a prophecy because this is this is happening now now people are losing their jobs for saying things like that correct you know 
and and um, people are being, you know, people's. Uh, I, I, who was it today? I was. Is it? Um, I was an actress who who had apologised because she had she'd raised some money and they'd given it to this charity called is it called Exodus? I think Exodus Twenty or something helps young girls who are being sex trafficked, right? Mm-hmm. And and she had to apologise for giving money because the founder at one stage in his life had said that he thought that gay marriage shouldn't happen and that he had at some stage said something that sounded vaguely anti-abortion right so so she was like, we've got this wrong okay so we have to apologize sorry for giving this money to this charity that's helping helping young women who are who are, who are kidnapped and, and 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 raped and sold and sold in sex slavery we can't give money to that anymore because the founder once said something that contravenes our code of wokeness right you know this is the world that we're living in now. Right. So all, all I'm saying is that we have to come to terms with the fact that that's that's that could happen. Yes. You know, and I'm all for I really am, you know, all for the culture war in insofar as, you know, we should be out there in public contending for the faith. But at the same time, we still have to be prepared to stand up and pay the cost if the culture war is lost or if the culture war is is being lost. Well, I, I don't think I don't think I don't separate those two things, right? I mean, to, to your point, not only do I think you should fight, I think that that is that is naturally part of. I mean, that's what martial arts is, right? You know, when I got into martial arts, that was one of the things you know th- that they taught us early on. Was, Listen, half of this game is getting hit. Half of this is getting hit. Don't get it twisted. You know that Hollywood stuff where these guys come and they you know they, you know knock out five people and no one lays a finger on them. That's not it. It's like you're going to get hit. You know, so, um, you know, we used to in my dojo, we used to do uh, we used to uh, train with like modern weapon, modern weapon disarms, like, you know, firearms, knives, whatever. It's like, listen, you're going to get cut. Like in an, if you get into a fight with someone who has a knife, you're going to get cut. The only question is where. <laughs> so let's let's train on that. Right. So that's my point is, is that y- y- what you've just described being willing, being under understanding that you're going to take these hits. That's part of fighting. You're going to get in there and, like, you're going to take it on the chin, you know, or you're going to take one to the liver, you know. And and the question is, like, are you ready for that? And and I think to the extent that you are, sometimes what you'll find is that, that your enemy is cotton candy. So here's the other th- interesting thing about this, this this whole cancel culture thing, this, this, this actress having to apologize. Now, why does she apologize? In other words, she didn't apologize because she was... You know, thinking about the roots of, I'm not even saying she's a Christian, but I'm saying just in terms of the threat environment, right? Now, what is a threat environment? Like, she recanted something or she issued an apology. Now, she was in no danger of being killed or even harmed. She was simply in, possibly in danger of a Twitter mob going after her for a few days, and then, then they forget about it like the mob always does, and they move on to another target. Now, maybe, you know, she might, she might have been afraid of, of not being able to get work, but... I think in even that, you know, it's like there's so many people who they issue these apologies. Why are you apologizing? Why? You know, yeah, okay, so the Twitter mob is all in, in a tizzy about the fact that you said this. Okay, well, okay, yeah, you're angry about that. Okay, yeah, keep it up. And what what very often happens is that, you know, they, they lose interest after a few days when they see that you're not backing down. You never back down in, in that sense. Um it's the same thing. These organizations, you, t- you talked about the very real, and I admit that it is a very real cost that people can bear, you know, where someone uh, finds that you said something, 
something something crazy like there are actually two genders, male and female, you know, and then they start making noise and then your employer takes sanctions against you. Right. It's, it's not it's almost never that the mob actually kinetically comes after you. It's that it's that you're, you're the, the institution that employs you. You know, says, oh, well, I'm sorry. They either come after you and they say that you have to apologize or they fire you or they. Okay, well, that's not. In in a sense, that shows us how weak. These some of these woke people are when you stand up to them, because all that's happening is the institution behind you is not standing up. You know, listen. The, a lot of these companies, these companies have more money than God. Like they don't have to, they don't have to back down. It's like what, 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 what? You know, is Procter and Gamble afraid that someone is the, of 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 a, of a global boycott by the woke? I mean, you see what I'm saying? It, you know, all these all these large companies that that you know are falling over themselves to issue apologies and do this and that. Do, are they are they afraid of this stuff? No, they're not. So it's in either. They um, either the corporate kind of entities among us are all in on this stuff for different reasons, which well, which may well be, or it's just cowardly bureaucrats doing what cowardly bureaucrats do, or cowardly middle managers doing what cowardly middle managers do. Um, either way, you know what you're saying is fundamentally correct. Is that we as individuals, and then and then you, you know, your organization, the church as a body, has to be ready to step in the arena and go toe to toe with this enemy. And and by the way, when necessary, you know, jump back, head on underground, and plan and scheme and do what it has to do, and then pop up somewhere else and and give them hell from from somewhere else. It's like this is. Um, this is the, the you know, I, I, I'm with you 100% as far as this being a new reality that we have to accept uh, because the mask has come off and, yeah. and now the, the enemy has shown himself to be the enemy and now you have to grapple with him. So Absolutely. Let me, let me ask you something, Mike, because um, we, we had a conversation a few days ago and, and, and something you said in that, com- we didn't record this conversation, but something you said to me uh, really, really uh, made an impression. You were saying that, I mean, I, I guess you were talking about conservatives but you could very well have been talking about christians you were saying that there's such a there's such a sort of there's such a sort of atmosphere of defeatism around at the moment because it does really seem to be the case that i mean from a christian perspective we're living in very dark times that we as i was saying that we've not seen before but also you know in terms of the in terms of if you want to use this phrase the culture war it does seem to be going very much one way and and there's there's this sort of there's this sense in which you know, well, I guess the the word is defeatism, you know, like we've lost, you know, isn't everything terrible, you know, and kind of, you know, people whining all the time. And I, I wanted you to say on this on this podcast, because I, I'm going to share it in my podcast as well. You know, what's your what's your response when when people are like that? What's your message to that to that to that mindset? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, you know, my I have a few different responses, some of them saltier than others, right? but um, some of them involving barracks language. But I mean, long story short, the first thing is that, look, when, when my when my Christian friends say this to me, when they you know, start despairing, I say that you, if especially if you are a Christian, you have no business despairing, obviously. Because one, your religion was born in the shadow of a, of a, of a vast and cruel empire, okay? 
It was born underground, under us, under the city, right? Under the city, under the civilization, under civis, right? And 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 look what that faith went on to do in the world. Look at the great things it went on to achieve in the world. What's, you know, the, the Roman Empire? I mean, there is still a Church of England, right? There is still a Roman Catholic Church. Is there a Roman Empire today? Okay, so who won that round, right? That's one. Uh, when it comes to people who are not necessarily Christian, what I say is that, you know, why are you, you know, stop moaning? Because, one, socialists don't do that. I mean, you see, a lot of these ideas, people say the Great Reset. I mean, I don't, I have friends who are, who are into, well, okay, the Great Reset, as, you know, people, people have talked openly about the Great Reset. So you can't call it a conspiracy. It's, it's in the open. It's not a conspiracy, uh, as Peter Hitchens would say. It's lunch, right? Okay. Now, but there are conspiracy theories floating around. Look, as far as I'm concerned, um, I don't care whether the, the quote-unquote conspiracy is real or not. The fact is that it's 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 a it's a recycling of some pretty old ideas. A lot of these ideas have been floating around for a long time. The Club of Rome was talking about overpopulation, about needing to uh, 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 depopulate the world back in the seventies, maybe even earlier than that. You know, uh, environmentalists have been moaning about how we're all going to die unless we unless no one has kids anymore. They've been talking about that for years. Socialists? How long? Have, I mean, we're going back all the way back to Das Kapital. Okay, now they don't, and, and they've had an almost uninterrupted string of failures. How come they never say all is lost? You never, you don't hear them saying, oh, you know, when, when the Berlin Wall fell, they didn't say, oh, all is lost, it's over. No, it's okay, now, we're gonna, now what are we going to do? That's what they said. When Venezuela yeah. turned in, 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 into, into, um, into a charnel house, that's what they said. They said, oh, well, no, what are we going to do now? Okay, so 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 you okay, so you know you take some hits, you know some prominent people get quote unquote canceled, but are still walking around, you know. You have an election that people tried to steal, you know. Now maybe maybe um, maybe POTUS is going to pull through and and reoccupy the White House. Maybe not. Maybe Biden's going to get it. I can't say for sure. Maybe they will successfully pull off the the caper. But what if they do? You, you, you're gonna you're gonna sit home and cry and say all is lost because you took a you you, you took a defeat. It's like if, if I mean, no one fights a war like this. So if yeah. it's a, if it's really a war, then get up and fight. And if you lose a battle, you 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 pull back, and you regroup, and you do you get some after action going. You say, okay, what do we do wrong? Da, 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 lessons learned. Okay, next, next, next. You know, I do this for a living. People throw me into impossible situations for a living. Okay, and and what I have to do is to hit the ground with a game plan. I don't, you know, show up somewhere and say, oh, you know, this this problem you have with your data, with your data management, it's it's just it's it's just all too big for me. And that's why I have a problem with people talking about these all encompassing conspiracies. Because at the end of the day, these one these people are not that bright. These people are not that bright. You know, you, you mean to tell me, you know, I mean, you mentioned Klaus Schwab. Okay, Klaus Schwab has a lot of dumb ideas about how to reorder society. Klaus Schwab is 80-something years old. Yeah. He'll be gone soon enough. He's, he's a problem. He's not the problem. You know, all these Davos people. Okay, so a bunch of guys with money got together at a ski resort in Switzerland. Oh, and they talked about their dumb ideas about how to reorder society. Are you going to cry because of that? Really? 
You know, you're yeah. going to tell me that there's nothing you can do. No, you haven't. It's it's back to the same thing I was telling before. I was saying before, and you were saying before about these belief systems not costing you anything. And this is why I get a lot of pushback sometimes from people when I talk about operational plans. I say, listen, if social media is censoring you, you must first build your own systems. Okay, if Google is censoring searches, you got to build your own search engines. All the tools to do this are available. They are free of charge. They're open source. You can do this. I've I've bored countless people online saying this and saying, listen, the Foundation Society does not charge any money. I don't want any donations. If you want to do this, I will help you for free. Okay, and what people want to come back with is, well, you don't understand because da 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 and Twitter and Jack Dorsey. No, no, no. You have a belief system that doesn't cost you anything and it's good to you. That's what the problem is now. The, the, you know, we, we, we're past. We know Davos, the Davos men are a problem. We know, you know, Biden and, Kam- and Kamala Harris and the Democrats. We know they're a problem. We know the socialists. But that's not this problem. This problem is you believe something and it's good to you. doesn't cost you anything. Now, you see, if you, if, if you want to incur the cost of actually, you know, racking your brain and figuring out how to spin up a server, okay, so you can run a censorship-proof wiki or, you know, or, or library or, you know, kind of a, a video feed or whatever, okay, now you, ha- now you have to put some skin in the game. It's easier to moan online and say all is lost and the West is going to fall and the United States is going to fall next and it's the Great Reset. I'm not having it. Like, you know, if that's what you believe, okay, but then like, yo, stay home then. Stay, you know, hide under the bed and, you know, have that be the thing. I am going to fight and this is how I fight. And and by the way, the reason I'm always talking about communications, I'm talking about social media systems, I'm about open source software, is because that is the first thing you have to do. And look, I love James Delingpole. You know, he's sound, okay, but he you know he doesn't he doesn't like when I say this because it's like, well, he thinks it's a trivial thing. And the problem is, listen, you want to fight this adversary. You want to take to the field with your forces as he's in the field with his. Okay. But the problem is that all your radios are owned by the enemy. So the, and the enemy you're trying to fight now, you say you want to resist this thing. Okay. Okay. But, but all your radios and half your weapons are owned by the enemy. And he has a remote kill switch. You can turn them off anytime. And then all your planning and logistics, you know, when you get go back to headquarters and plan your next operation, all that planning is happening on computers that he controls. So you got to build that first. You you have no communications, you have no logistics, you have no weapons. And by weapons I mean, you know, informational weapons. Just just yeah. so, so people don't, you know, use any oh, carbon mics talking about weapons, right? Okay. So that's what you have to do first. And then you can take to the field. And then you've got a shot. You know, before that, you're just talking, you're just moaning. And, and I, I'm, I'm not having it. It's like, no, th- no, thank you. You know, you have, to, you have to make him. And by the way, uh, last thing, and I know I went on for a bit. Last thing is, as a kid who was bullied, sometimes what you have to realize is you're going to take an L. You're going to take a loss. And the answer is not to, to, just, to just cower because you're going to take a loss. The answer is, okay, you know something? Okay, but you're going to have to work for this here, all right? Yeah. I ain't no socialist. You got to work for this, all right? You, you, you very well might kick my ass, but you're going to have to work for it. Make them work for it. You know, don't curl up in a ball and say, oh, you know, Davos and, and, and Klaus. Look at Klaus Schwab. Really? That's, that's the man you're afraid of, 
Really, if you're yeah. afraid of Klaus Schwab, man, I, I got I got nothing for you. No, 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 no. It's not like he is gonna. He's got to work like everybody else. He's got to yeah. come with what he has to come with, and so does and so does George Soros, and so does Bill Gates, and so does uh, Jack Dorsey, and so does Mark Zuckerberg. That punk. Okay, you've got to work for this here. I'll shut up now because <laughs> he got me all heated. But yeah, that's that's exactly what I wanted to hear. And um, you know. Uh, if you if you ever you know if you ever do cross the line, Carbon Mike, you'd make a hell of a good preacher, I, I have to say. Um, but uh, no, I mean, let, let's yeah, I mean, just just to echo some of that. I mean, when you read about Gramsci, right, and the long march through the institutions, yeah. it has a, you know the initial response that uh, it, you know when I learned about that stuff for the first time is is a kind of paralysis almost. You read yes. it and you think, oh, I cannot believe this has been going on, and it's been going on for for almost a hundred years. And now this is this is the reason that you know. All of our institutions, including the Conservative Party, are in the grip of the left. Correct. Because they've got a plan and they've carried out that plan. And, you know, when Trump was elected in 2016, the response of the left was, it's not going to happen again. All right. So we've lost this one. And there were there were lots of tears, as we all saw. But their response was, we're going to make sure this never happens again. And in four years, our man or woman is going to be in the White House, right? And the reason that this is so important, and I think for Christians, and this would be, you know, this is something I'm taking into into my soul as well, mm. is that we cannot have this kind of attitude that the world out there is more powerful and therefore we have to just give in, right? right? Where right. is your faith, you know, whether you're a Christian or, or not? Where's your faith? Do you actually believe the things that you say you believe? Do you believe that your ideas are good? Do you believe that there is a God? Do you believe that there is a Holy Spirit? If you do, then you can't give up. You can't just allow yourself to be paralyzed. You can't just, I don't know, complacently go out into the world and imagine that everyone's going to be nice to you and that everything is going to work out. You have to have faith. And I think you're exactly right when you talk about getting organized as well. Yes. Use your mind, use your brain, use your abilities and think about how you're going to respond to the situation. And so I think something really interesting to me, actually, I was having a conversation recently about this, this new Rod Dreher book, Live Not My Life, Lies, which is all about totalitarianism, right? Mm -hmm. What does the church do in terms of totalitarianism? Well, you know, it has to go underground, yeah? And that, that's definitely part of it, I think. And that may have to happen, you know, if, if the government keeps on putting its finger on the church, you know, pressing its thumb on the church, closing us down, controlling us and stuff, there may have to be an underground church. But there is another way of approaching it as well. And it's not mutually contradictory because you can have the underground stuff, you can have the secretive stuff, but there's another approach as well. And it's called ride the tiger, right? Have you heard of this ride the tiger re response? This is exactly the same thing that Gramsci was suggesting, but for Christianity or for conservatism or, or whatever, is why should they be the ones? Why should they be the only ones who get to do the long march through the institutions. Why can't we do that as well? Right. The only reason is because we have let them, right? And now they've transformed the institutions into their image, so they're hostile to us. But why should we allow them to march through the institutions for decades without us putting our peoples in there with our values? You know, why shouldn't there be Christian policemen? You know, why shouldn't there be Christians running the BBC? The only reason why not is because we've let them do it. And there is no reason in heaven or on earth why. So I say, let's get organized. Let's 
get a plan and let's do all of it you know let's do the underground stuff if we need to but we also need to try and influence this world for good around us and not give up not despair so i think we're on the same page here you know i gotta say i'm just man i'm so happy when you said that because it's like i've been trying to tell people that like and you know it's it's look i'm i'm terrible at marketing i'll just you know i don't I don't really know how to kind of chase clicks and I don't care to chase clicks. But basically I've been trying to tell people. And one of the reasons I think I told you when, when we when we got in contact that I've been dying to talk to more church people and more clergymen is because one of the things one of the things I've been trying to do with the Foundation of Society is listen, I want to train some Christian software engineers. Okay? Yeah. It's like I want some believing Christians who are interested in software. Huh? You know, because because you know something, you you need to get your people. And, and again, I'm I'm a pilgrim. I'm not even of the fold. But it's like you need. It's obvious to me. You need to get your people in there. You need to get your people. You listen. You need to get more Christians in these technology companies, whether they're open about it or not, so that you have that there's some core of people who still believe in the sanctity of the human being. Yeah. Like this, I, I'm gonna tell you right now. I know I'm flipping around a lot, or rather, I know I'm jumping around a lot with, uh, on different topics, but, you know, talking about automation, talking about the elevation of the computer and the tool to, 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 um, to even the, the realm of the human, which I think is a mistake. You know, every time I talk about this stuff, what I always tell people is, listen, human, human general intelligence is a miracle. And there's something sick about our society that we're talking as if, as if cars can think for themselves. And... Uh, when when these when when companies like Tesla have been pushing se- quote unquote self driving cars, one of the things I predicted was that you know when one of these things is going to get someone killed, more than one is going to get someone killed, and when it does get someone killed, what you're going to see is the the, the company itself is going to try to spin it like it was the person's fault, and the press is going to go along, and that happened, right? Um, uh. Uh, a, a test. I think it was a Tesla vehicle ran over a woman in in uh, in somewhere where they were doing it. Now they say, well, well, it's because the person, the the driver behind the wheel, wasn't looking at the road, what have you. But my thing is, well, th- this thing is obviously not not infallible. This thing should be able to see in the dark. It's got infrared. Why can't it see in the dark? That's a problem. Um, so, so you need to get your people in there. There's not enough people in this industry who have a fundamental sense of the sanctity of the human being and, and, and the sacred nature of the human being and the miraculous nature. There's not enough people working in, quote unquote, artificial intelligence who understand that it's just a tool, that it's just linear algebra and statistics and the real magnificence is human general intelligence and the automation has to serve people there's not enough people who think that way and there's a big you know wellspring of that belief in the christian faith but you're not pushing your people where you need and so i'm so you can't imagine how happy i am to hear you say that he's like yes you need to get in there get in there it's all gramsci said this whatever gramsci's gone you're we're here right now who's standing in front of you I will teach any of your people for free. If you have young Christians who want to know, who want to get into software engineering, even if they don't have a kind of a, 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 a Christian soldier mentality, where even if they just want to, you know, 
create a, 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 a stable middle class existence for themselves by doing this. Well, that's good, too. You want to just make good money as a software engineer and, and, and marry a good woman and raise a family? Wonderful. That, that, that's good, too. But one way or another, yeah, you got to, and I agree with you, it's got to be all of the above. It's got, you got, it's got to be a full court press. It's got to be everything. You know, you, you got to be building things. You got to be, you know, marching through the institutions. You got to, you got to go underground. Um, you know, you have to, you have to actually step up and you're going to, and you're going to take some hits and that's fine. But fundamentally you can't despair. And again, as Christians, you shouldn't despair. Jesus Christ, you worship a God that escaped from the grave. I mean, come on. What are you telling me? Yeah, literally, your your guy got nailed to a structure, huh? <laughs> you know, and 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 came back, <laughs> walking around talking to people, you know, and and what? You, you, and you, oh, you well, someone lost an election or someone tried to steal an election? What are you kidding me? What what is that? And again, that, that's that atrophying of, of of the warrior spirit. Part of this, by the way, I know we talked about a lot of things, but you know, the 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 also the. The spirit of man and woman, and particularly the spirit of man uh, and the manly fighting spirit, that's another thing that, um, you know, Chesterton talks about how um, the church was so good, Christianity was so good at reconciling opposites by embracing opposites, right? Um, And reconciling the notion of being pacific on the one hand and being like militant on the other, you know? And I think that's important too, because you need both. You need both. And you need to understand when to turn the knob on either one, but you have to have both because that's the kind of, the, you know, the, the enemy you're fighting is, is, is very clever and very wily. And, and there is no one pattern that's going to capture all the, all the battlefield scenarios. So you have to be, but, but, but fundamentally, every contradiction, every contradiction is, is a source of tension, meaning it's a source of energy. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think we're definitely on the same page there. I mean, just to tie just to tie that up, I think that um, I think that Christians have got too much of a kind of secular, sacred uh, dichotomy in their minds when they think about these kind of things. They Correct. think, well, you know, my faith is in the church, and then the rest of the time I'm out there in the world, you know, making money or doing whatever. Um, actually, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. You know, you if you're if you're a witness for Christ. You know, you're a witness for Christ every day, 24-7, and you can use that witness to be a leaven in, in, in the culture and the society that, that you're living in. And, and I guess the, 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 the analogy with the way that the socialist uh, movement and the left, you know, the left-wing movement has, 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 has permeated Western civilization throughout the last um, 100 years or more, I suppose, is, I think, it's, I think it's a very powerful one, really. But, I mean, can I just, Mike, I've got about 15 minutes left. I, sure. I'd just like to um, just change, change the topic ever so slightly. And it might, this, is a, this is kind of a big question, so uh, we might have to have another conversation about this. Oh, yeah. uh, but we talked, I mean, I, I shared a little bit earlier about, you know, my, my journey to faith. And it's, it's very interesting to me that you say, you know, you describe yourself as a, as a pilgrim and you sort of say you, you sort of um, lost your faith many years ago, but you sort of feel like, you know, things are pointing you in, in, in that, in more in that direction now. Yes. I guess my question, I'm, I'm interested to hear you say more, more about that, uh, just, you know, in terms of, you know, where you're at at the moment. And I guess my sort of further question would be, you know, what, what do you think it would take to, to push you to take that, to take that extra step to say, you know, I'm in, you know, I want to be a follower of Christ now. I want to be part of the church. That's a good question. So uh, talking about, you know, my path 
or, or, or you know, I guess my pilgrimage, right? Um, I was always a big science geek, right? Um, <clears throat> and uh, at a certain point, when... I mean, Jordan Peterson was a big part of it because Jordan Peterson, talking about the biblical stories, put them in a frame where I, that, that kind of transcended the... I don't even want to say the learned skepticism because, you know, I've, I've always been a skeptic about a lot of things, but maybe it's also true that people's, people's skepticism um, people's skepticism can be selective. <laughs> you know, it's certainly true of, of, of um, so-called conservatives, right? I find it in the U.S. People's skepticism about, the, about government is very selective. They're skeptical about the government doing certain things, but other things they have no problem. Anyway... I don't want to, uh, to go off on too much of a tangent. So, faith, um, science. So Jordan Peterson was a big part of it. And then also, you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's, uh, ironically, maybe it's, it's, it's the science fiction, uh, my my background is a science fiction geek, right? I always love science fiction, and 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 a life spent in 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 with a career in computing. Um, you know, just I, I can't say there was any one thing that kind of it's a variety of things, but you know, random insights. You know, at at some point, I remember just asking myself, "Wait a minute!" So like, so so, let me get this straight: this self driving car, you think that can think? Right, but you think the universe is not a mind itself? Like the universe isn't thinking, you know? Or like just you know, you hear people trying to push Darwinian evolution, which I think is a perfectly uh, great model for what it you know for what it explains. Again, the problem is trying to make it explain more than it more than it's designed to explain. But, you know, you, you try, trying to push it beyond what it can possibly bear. You say, well, you know, how did? There are certain things that if you if you look at the certain aspects of the natural world, that if you look at them, they look like problem solving. They look like problem solving. And then you look at, you know, and if you just do the math, if you just say, listen, yes, uh, Darwinian evolution does explain optimization, you know, to use a term from my industry. It does explain how, how systems become highly optimized. It doesn't explain how novelty emerges. It wasn't designed to do that. That's not, that's not what Darwin was trying to do. And so you look at, I mean, I'll give you a couple brief examples. I mean, um, you know, uh, there, uh, there's a, well, parasites in general. Parasitology is a very troublesome or should be a very troublesome field for Milton atheists or for, or for pure materialists, for, for quote-unquote pure Darwinists. Because here you have a situation where you have these organisms that seem like they're solving, seem like they're solving problems that they couldn't know anything about. What I mean by that is, um, there's a parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. It's a um, it's a microscopic parasite. Okay, um, it infects rodents, and it spends part of its life cycle in the bodies of cats and and even some birds. And so, what it does to a, a rodent when it infects the rodent is it makes the rodent unafraid of the smell of cat urine, and therefore the rodent will cease to avoid the places it should avoid and become eaten and get eaten by a cat, and then the, and then the parasite passes into the cat, and now it's okay. There's a parasite that infects uh, ants, 
and it spends part of its life cycle in the body of the ant, part in the body of a sheep. And when it affects the ant, the ant climbs to the top of a blade of grass, locks its jaws on, and that's it. It's paralyzed. And the sheep comes along, eats the blade of grass with the ant, and now the parasite continues its life cycle. Now, that's odd, right? Because how does this thing know how tall a blade of grass is? And don't tell me that that, that it, it, it was a random... Uh, combination of gen- I know how genetic material works, <laughs> okay, and it's like no, the, based on the p- the pace at which biological mo- molecules combine, there has not been enough time since the beginning of life on Earth for that many combinations to come up with something so highly optimized. There's a parasite that infects snails. And when the and, and when it infects the snail, it, it infects the snail's eye. It turns it it makes it kind of almost it looks like a strobing kind of pattern. And then and then the snail's brain is infected. It crawls to the top of a a, a leaf or the end of a leaf where it's visible by birds. Birds comes down, sees that thing, looks like a worm, eats the snail. Now the parasite continues its life cycle. Okay, Mal- the malaria parasite, a Plasmodium falciparum, infects human beings when it's re- when it's quote unquote ready to be transmitted. It changes your body chemistry so you're more attractive to mosquitoes. Huh? Now, what that seems to mean to me is that the universe itself is thinking. So then if the universe itself is thinking, then where did it uh, gain its capability to think? And then human beings, how, how is it that the universe is comprehensible to us? Why should reason be a tool with which we can infer the behavior of galaxies? There is no Darwinian advantage to astrophysics. None. There's none. Right? Where do numbers come from? Where do where where does your numerate sense come from? Where does your what is where does geometry come from? Geometry is an interesting thing. Geometry isn't an empirical science. You know, like biology is empirical. Geometry and trigonometry are definitely not because there are no right angles in nature. So all that by way of saying, I know I'm rambling a bit, sorry, but the, it's it's that in just random insights and just really sitting it's it's maybe it's just the, the, you know, getting to a certain point in my life where I was no longer angry with God or angry with religion, I could just sit with these questions. And when I just sat with them, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, consumed with a kind of a religious fervor. It was more like, I said, well, wait a minute, this, this, you know, this militant atheism, you know, just doesn't hold water. It's just not good enough, you know? And, and, and then I liked also what Peter Hitchens said, which is that, listen, I'm, there is not proof of God. There's evidence of the existence of God. There's not proof. At the end of the day, belief is a choice, and I choose to believe. But there's plenty of evidence, plenty of circumstantial evidence. But look, circumstantial evidence proves lots of cases. Lots of people have been hanged on circumstantial evidence. <laughs> so, right? So all these things together kind of come to me over the years and me sitting and writing and talking to people and then, and then seeing, um, you know, how, how certain belief systems, the effect they have in the world, and the idea that, you know, certain belief systems seem to be, certain design patterns seem to be so powerful that even if you partially adopt them, even if you don't take them all the way to heart, they improve things right away. That's a very strong bit of circumstantial evidence. You know what I'm saying? Um, the idea that even if you believe, if, if you behave as if, um, you know, w- what Christ has to, had to say was true, you know, even if, 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 you, if you took that to heart without really taking him to heart, all of a sudden, like, well, you, you, like you, you can structure your society better. It's, it's as if, you know, the, the belief that even, even science, the growth of science and how powerful science is, well, what does that come from? Doesn't that come from the fundamental belief that, that, that the universe was, was 
cast into being by a giver of laws, by a rational giver of laws, and that if you could understand the laws, you could understand the thing. So, um, so that's that's what a lot of what has has pointed me to this. And then, of course, you know, reading about different different Christians in history, going back to C.S. Lewis and finding that, aside from writing wonderful children's stories, he was this he he was such a great uh, reasoner. You know, the, like his his. Some theological reasoning was top-notch. G.K. Chesterton, me having been a big word geek, you know, finding that, oh, this this guy, like, in terms of his ability to put words in a sequence, this guy is a savage. He's one of the best writers ever. Yeah, he's got some racist stuff going on, but that's okay. That's fine. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave by the wayside everything Chesterton has to say that is not, that's kind of like narrow and tribal and, and stereotyping, what have you. And I'll take up everything that he has to say to me that's uplifting and kind of inspiring and, and kind of mystical, you know. And so um, all these things together have kind of like put me on this path of Simone Vi. We could talk about her next time, right? Um, you know, all these things have put me on the path of, of this pilgrimage. What would, uh, what would, push me over the line I don't know but I will tell you that um, you know Christopher excuse me Saint Christopher is my favorite saint for a reason um, and maybe we can talk about that next time but uh, but yeah that's um, yeah the, uh, the patron saint of journeys the patron saint of I'm sorry journeys is he the, the patron saint of journeys yes sir patron saint of travelers and that's right that's right you know. No, that's great. No, thank you. That's a, that's such a that's such a wonderful answer, and um, yeah, it's a, a marvelous description of, of uh, particularly when you, what you were saying about uh, parasitology. I've never heard that before. Yeah, and that's that's quite incredible. Uh, listen, Mike, I'm going to have to go unfortunately because I've got um, another one of these interminable Zoom calls that we all have to have <laughs> all the time now. Yep. But I just want to say thank you so much for, for, for speaking to me. I found this fascinating and uh, really enjoyable. And I, I genuinely would like to do it again. Oh, uh, ab- absolutely. On lots of this stuff. Oh, absolutely. Listen, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you. Um, it's been amazing talking with you. And yeah, I can't wait for us to do it again. So, um, so yeah, let's definitely talk again soon. And yeah, um, yeah that's it. Okay. All great. right. <laughs> Take care. Thanks so much, Mike. Bye now. Thank you. Bye.